So now hear once again the reading of God's holy word. These are the very words of God. Let us receive them as such. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Let's pray for the preaching. O Lord our God, it is truly in the scriptures we find the voice of God. And we see that it was Herod's great folly to receive adulation and thanks when he spoke to have the people say it is the voice of God. And so, Father, we do not want to confuse the voice of the preacher with the word of God. And so we pray, Father, that you would enable the minister of God to decrease, that it would be the purity of the word of God and all things that can be derived from it out of good and necessary consequence that would be found in the preaching of the holy word. Help your minister decrease for the sake of Jesus, who must increase in this congregation. And so, Father, give your spirit to the minister to preach up Jesus And we pray that you would give the same spirit to the people of God, especially in this afternoon hour, that they would hear the words of life and be conformed to it. Only your spirit can do this work. So help us, Father, in this way. And so, Father, to that end, we pray that you would speak, Lord, for thy servants heareth. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the great reason for backsliding and eventually, if unchecked, total apostasy is rather simple when you consider it in our text. It is a refusal to hear God brought on by the deception of sin, what is called the deceitfulness of sin. It is that refusal to hearken unto the word of God, not just to hear it, but to obey it. It is that refusal to uh, hear and obey the word of God which leads to what our text says is a departure from the living God. And that departure is great indeed because that departure is to hell, ultimately. It is the product of an evil heart of unbelief that you are called to beware. If this morning we were called to beware false prophets who come in sheep's clothing Tonight, the Holy Scripture says that we must beware our own evil heart of unbelief. That's what the Hebrews at the time were warned of by the apostle in our text. You think of this, he had just, he had just preached on the superiority of Jesus Christ over Moses. Now he reminds them, remember, your forefathers rebelled against Moses in the wilderness. They fell for the deception of sin and they refused the voice of God through Moses. The implication for us is this. 
If they fell in the wilderness over those 40 years, one carcass after another, as the Bible says, kept short of the promised land, how much worse is it for us if we refuse to heed the words of Jesus Christ? Far superior to Moses. Where was Moses taking them? To the land of promise, wasn't he? He was taking them to the land of promise, Canaan. But that land was only a shadow of the true paradise of God found in heaven. And so he shows them, if you rebel against the full revelation of God found in Jesus Christ, if you fall for sin's deceit and you abandon Jesus, you will fall far short of heaven's rest and you will perish as they perished in the wilderness. You will perish in hell. So with that, then, to set the gravity of what the apostle is doing, our theme is our need to obey Christ's voice and not fall for sin's deceit, lest we abandon Christ and not enter his heavenly rest. As you might know, the next chapter and a half deals entirely with the rest that Jesus Christ has come to give us. And we must make sure that we are diligent to see. In fact, you'll see that there are words like strive to enter that rest. And that sounds so alien today in this society. But we are called to be diligent to make sure we enter Canaan, heavenly Canaan. And so with that, we will be exhorted in this sermon under three headings found in your outline. First is God's voice. Second is sin's deceit. And third is our urgency. First, God's voice. Verse 7 says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if ye will hear his voice. Our text confronts us with this truth, beloved. We hear the voice of God. We hear the voice of God. The, the thrice holy God Almighty, our Maker, judge over all men, the most glorious being that there is, infinitely above us. He speaks to man, and he intends that man would listen. How does he speak to us? Through the Holy Scriptures. When the Apostle says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, he cites Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, which says, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation, and so on. When he says the Holy Ghost is speaking to you, he cites the Scriptures, friends. Do you understand what he's doing? He says, today, if you'll hear God's voice, he's not expecting the Hebrews to sit there in their assembly and then just close their eyes and try to focus and hear and find and tune in to the voice of God. He cites the Holy Scripture. And he says, today, if you'll hear his voice, saying when the Holy Ghost speaks, he speaks through the Scripture. So, beloved, to hear the voice of God Almighty, open your Bible Read it carefully, and not just read it carefully, listen to it or hear it and read it with awe as the very voice of God. Paul wrote in Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That is, literally God breathed. Paul commended the Thessalonians, when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 These are the very words of God, friends. When you take up your Bible and you read it, 
or you hear it read as you've heard it read in the services, or when you hear it preached, you're hearing God Almighty speak to you. Now, if you've been Reformed for some time, you know, we say this often, this is God speaking, but I don't know if we really think on it, friends. God, blessed God Almighty, speaking to us. The voice that thundered at Sinai and all the people trembled before. That same God is speaking through this medium. When you hear the word of God, you are hearing his voice from the scriptures. If you listen by faith, the God of heaven speaks through the Holy Ghost in the scriptures. Not an ephemeral, nebulous voice the charismatics believe that they are hearing, but the clear, direct, indisputable speech of God from the scripture that no man can contend against. When we read these words, these are the words of God. I want you to think on this. In in verse 12, he is called the living God. Good and necessary consequence tells you then this word is alive. This is the word of the living God. It is no dead word on the pages of an old book, but it has vitality and it has life in it. By the blessing of the Spirit of God working in it, it gives life and it speaks to you personally. And today it's very remarkable what the scripture is saying right now in our text. It says to us, hear my voice, doesn't it? It says, hear my voice. Today, he says, hear my voice. He says, do not harden your hearts by disobeying my word as your forefathers did. When we come to the word of God, beloved, these are the words of God. We have to attend to it diligently. We have to believe it thoroughly. We have to love it adoringly. And we have to obey it cheerfully. The voice of God. That has to mean something to us, doesn't it? This is the voice of God. Well, he cites, as I've said, Psalm 95, a psalm that demonstrates and remembers Israel's provocation of God in the wilderness. You remember they had a a promised rest, right? Uh, Moses, as the Redeemer God had sent, had come to save his people. They had before them a promised rest. Slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years now had a promised rest the promise of Canaan. He said in Exodus thirty-three, fourteen, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. In a land that was overflowing, he said, with milk and honey. A land of rest. But they constantly, constantly provoked him instead of trusting him, friends. They refused to enter Canaan. You think of this. Because its inhabitants seemed too mighty for them. You remember that. What what happened? We'll cover this in the second heading. They fell for sin's deceit. They feared mortal men. Though all men are nothing compared to Almighty God, who had already demonstrated his works, as this text has said. An Almighty God who has crushed Pharaoh, who has taken them out of the most mightiest power on the planet. He said he would give them rest, and he had liberate them, and they refused to believe him. And so, when there was no water at Meribah in Numbers 20, which is alluded to in Psalm 95, with unbelieving hearts deceived by sin, they told Jehovah this, that you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us. 
Though what did he told them? I have come to free you from the house of bondage and to give you rest. You know, the Bible here calls this an evil heart of unbelief. And it is truly evil. How ready they were to believe sin's deception instead of God who had promised and demonstrated he could do it. I will give thee rest. Rest. We've just talked about this, right? That's what Canaan pictured for the former slaves who had made brick without straw. When nobody on the earth would remember them, God Almighty remembered them and spoke grace to them. And what is so remarkable, and you have to understand this about your heart, friends, what is so remarkable about fallen, sinful men and women like us is that gracious promises from God to sinners like us, we often distrust. Isn't that the most perverted thing? You know, for us to, by faith, cast ourselves on the promises of the invisible God is a struggle for us. We struggle to embrace them and believe them. And what that exposes for us is that great unbelief in our heart. Unbelief, friends, that God's word is a great evil. And you need to think of the implications of this, right? A word comes from God Almighty, and I don't believe it out of my evil, unbelieving heart. What am I saying to God? I am saying I am putting you under judgment, God, and I find you wanting I find you untruthful. I will refuse to believe what God has to say. It calls, unbelief calls God a liar. It calls God one unable or unwilling to do what he has promised. Don't sugarcoat it. This is gross. This is evil. The Holy Ghost calls it evil. And it is a heart of unbelief. And for us who know Jesus, friends, we must not turn back from any precious promises of rest that he has given us. We must have faith in every promise from God. You see here the contrast between the wilderness generation and Hebrews chapter 11. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. How did they treat the promises? But were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That is what you are called to do with the word of God. You are to be persuaded by the word of God and you are to embrace the word of God from the heart and live life in view of eternity that is before us. And so for the Hebrews, what the apostle is saying, and for us too, to harden our hearts to the revelation of Christ is far greater, far worse than the condemnation given to those who disobeyed Moses. Because you think of the rest that Jesus has come to give us, right? And I've circled around this, but I don't think we can hear it enough. Jesus didn't come to give us a plot of land in the Middle East. Our rest is heavenly, friends. What did he say? What did he say, beloved? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11. That's no different, really. Isn't that the same word that he was giving to the slaves in Exodus 33? He has come to give us rest. He promised it, beloved, and you must believe it. He promised to give weary sinners rest. Sinners wearied under sin, wearied under the fruitless task of being good enough for God. He said he will give you rest from all of that. Are you going to harden 
your heart to the word of Christ now? Are you going to think that you will find rest in anyone or anything else but Jesus now? You cannot give yourself rest. Sin, sin will not give you rest. Idols will not give you rest. The things of this world will not give you rest. Do not be deceived. Money and property will never, ever give you rest, beloved. Learning will not give you rest. No, if not Jesus, nothing will give you rest. Jesus is the answer to Solomon in Ecclesiastes, where he finds no rest under the sun. In nothing. If not Jesus, there is no rest for you. Period. You have to embrace that and be persuaded of it. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How we must be persuaded by it. I don't think we often think of Christ in that way. Or maybe we thought, you know what, I came to Christ once, Now I'm good. I don't need him to give me rest anymore. Every day of your life, beloved, you have to go to Christ and get rest. The last text said, consider Jesus. And what we have to understand is, this is so contrary to what we hear so much in the church anymore. If you embrace his promise of rest, just like the Israelites, you must take up his yoke as well. Right? He said he would give you rest if you go to him, but he also said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Meaning that if you have come to Jesus for rest, you must learn his word, you must hear him speak to you, and you must live it out as we considered this morning in godliness. If you have the promise of rest, you will live out the precepts he gives. Promise and precept are connected, not to earn eternal life, mind you, but to live for Christ in view of eternity. I want you to listen to how Paul uses Christ's promise of rest in 1 Timothy 4.8. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. Listen to this. Having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. He says, you have the promise of eternal life. Exercise yourself unto godliness. It's not a stagnant faith. You exercise yourself. And to the carnal mind, and too much, much too much Christianity, this exercise of godliness sounds dreadful. It seems a burden, a terrifying yoke. What a thing to say to Jesus, who says, my my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's actually an evil heart of unbelief to say, I will receive the promise of eternal life, but I will not live according to that promise. That I will not live for God. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. That is, they are not burdensome. 1 John 5 verse 3. This is the yoke of Christ. It is easy and light because a heart of faith in opposition to an evil heart of unbelief, actually loves the precepts of God and knows that the same Jesus who gives rest gives us power to obey. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. 
John 15, 5. And so this is why his, his yoke is easy and his burden is light, because Jesus himself is yoked there with you in a sense, carrying your burden with you. The power and ability to follow him by faith is given by him as well. And let me say, the deeper, deeper your spiritual connection is with Christ in exercising godliness, the sweeter and easier your walk with the Lord becomes. You know, when you exercise yourself constantly to godliness, the easier it is to live in godliness. Yet the more that unbelief creeps into your heart and your heart becomes hardened by that, which is what our text says, the more time you spend in the world, the more time you send in your, spend in your sin, the greater your hardness of heart, the more you backslide and you find yourself on the road to apostasy and your burdens become more crushing, in fact. And if you've ever lived in a backslidden state, you know, state, you know that. Until the time you return to Jesus and you truly found that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So then, to disbelieve the word of God as we return to this text, promise or precept, that is, promise or command, all of it, you need to listen to this carefully, provokes God. That's what it says. It provokes God. Israel's unbelief is called a provocation in our text. It is no small thing to disbelieve this word. Not a small thing at all, friends. It provokes God. It provokes the Almighty. In our next text in Luke's Gospel, as Luke concludes, or Jesus concludes his sermon on the plain, you are going to hear Jesus say in such convicting words, Why call me, ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? It's a provocation of Jesus Christ to listen to his words and not do them. Why would you even call me Lord and not do what I say? And a continued provocation of the Lord, if unrepented of, will harden your hearts and it will put you on a path, a trajectory to depart from the living God. He says, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. Every time you, beloved, harden your hearts to the word of God, you're exposing an evil heart of unbelief. And disobedience to God's word is no small thing. According to this text, this is how apostasy begins. Listen to the promise to the disobedient. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Verse 11. That's a solemn thing, friends. To live a life in constant disobedience to Christ, profession notwithstanding, really puts you in danger of the hellfire, not because you're losing your salvation, but because you never never were given a heart of faith in the first place. Yours is instead an evil heart of unbelief. Do you see that? It's the heart that's being called out here. You've never been born again. And whatever, whatever common operations of the Spirit have happened in your life to the point where maybe you thought following Jesus was a good thing at one point. Maybe you saw, well, maybe Jesus will make my life better. Or maybe you were uh, afraid of hell for a moment, uh, but it was just really just the thought of eternal punishment that did it to you. Whatever the case is, at some point your evil heart of unbelief is exposed when you disobey and disbelieve the Word of God. 
And it will be shown and you will depart from Christ. And all of us, every one of us, myself included, must constantly ask, how, how is my obedience to the word of God? Am I, am I in a ha- high-handed manner disobeying his speech? Well, what we need to see, and this is where we'll spend the remainder of our time, is that it is our great foe's sin that often deceives us into disobeying the word of God. And we need to be, we need to be beloved, wise to it, if you understand sin's deception, by God's help, you can be wise to it, and you will, by God's help, never depart from Christ because of sin. So let's understand sin's deceit in our second heading. In verse 12, we are warned to expunge unbelief, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And the contrast of our text, then, is the trustworthy voice of God compared to the deceitful voice of sin. You see that? This is the word of God that we must heed, and we're going to find that often what we do is we pay attention to the slippery, deceptive voice of sin that calls out to us. And the question for all of us is, whose voice will we hear? Whose voice will we obey? Whose voice will we fall for? If it is sin that is speaking to us, will we obey sin or will we obey God? You know, this is the fundamental problem with our race, beloved, isn't it? It goes back to Eden, where we fell for sin's deception. And what you and I need to think of is, if it ensnared Adam and Eve in their innocency, how about you and me corrupted by the fall? It is far, far worse in us, beloved, than it was for them. The good news, good news, beloved, is this, is that sin is very predictable. It really is. Paul said of Satan, who is the living embodiment of sin in some ways, we are not ignorant of his devices in 2 Corinthians 2.11. So what I would like us to do is consider and understand by God's help the devices sin uses to deceive us. Let's begin in Eden, where we read what? That Satan deceived Eve, don't we? And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled, that is, deceived me, and I did eat, in Genesis 3.13. And later, Paul says that Eve was deceived. The the devil, as really not as just himself, but really, again, as sort of a picture of sin, is cunning and deceptive. What do we hear of the serpent? Now, the serpent was more subtle, that is, cunning, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Genesis 3, 1. And so we find that sin in our text and throughout the Bible is something that is very crafty. It is very beguiling. What was the opening then, as you think back to the garden? What was the opening that caused Eve to sin? What was the manner in which the deception first came? Where the serpent says to her, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden. Now do you see how that connects with our text? What is that? But an ignoring of the voice of God in favor of sin's deception, isn't it? This is why it says, Today if you will hear your voice, harden not your hearts. Right? This is what the same attack vector that the word, that the, the, the devil and sin uses immediately to attack the word of God. 
Eve should have known, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. But the serpent's cunning was found in this, in putting doubt in God's word into her heart. And I also want you to consider this too. He didn't just put doubt in God's word, but as God itself, God's word itself is a reflection of God's character, he impugned the very nature of God, didn't he? The very character of her God. God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. <laughs> Here's the deceit. You know, he doesn't have to say it in these words, but the undertone is there, isn't it? What a terrible God you serve. What a terrible God you serve, Eve. What a graceless, miserable killjoy he is, Eve. It would be better, wouldn't it, if you didn't listen to him? The deceitfulness of sin always in some way attacks God's character. Oh, sin says God is restrictive. God does not understand you. God is putting heavy burdens on you. God does not want you to enjoy your life. He does not want you to have pleasure. Sin is always going to, in some crafty way, make you doubt the goodness of God. And so the serpent deceived her into turning her once innocent heart to lust, right? You see this. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. Friends, at the end of the day, it's this simple. She lusted after that fruit more than she loved her God. That's what sin causes us to do. It causes us to say this thing that I know God is displeased with. I love it more than I love God who has given the command. And this is what makes sin in so many ways heinous to the child of God. She no longer said of the voice, the word of God, the voice of my beloved. Instead, she fell for the slippery words of the serpent instead. And what happened? They hardened their heart to God. They fell. They were corrupted through the deception of sin. They hardened their heart to a gracious and benevolent God who took a creature from the dust and ennobled him with the very image of God. They departed from God and found that his promise in the word is true. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. They died spiritually, cast out of paradise, just as the Israelites were kept out of Eden, and just as we will be kept out of heaven if we harden our hearts to God's word. And out of Eden, they had, with their natural lifespan now, before they would die finally, they had hundreds of years to meditate on this truth. What sin promised was a lie, and what God promised was true. For hundreds of years, they would have to listen to that thought. Everything sin promised me was a lie. And what God promised was true. You and I must learn that lesson as well. You and I must learn the lesson that sin is the greatest of evils. And it is the most deadly and slippery foe of all. I I love how Venning puts it. I'm going to bring some stuff out of Venning's book on sin. Sin is far worse than the devil. Now, the devil partakes of sin, and he may embody it as a creature in some ways, but sin itself is far, far, far worse than anything else. And the thought of this should terrify us. Sin indwells us all. 
for we are fallen. And it is terrifying. It is the plague of plagues. Sin, friends, makes Satan seem like a docile house cat. Sin is far worse than Satan. There is no evil greater than sin. It lies, it devours, it consumes all men outside of Jesus. Because of sin, not Satan, Jesus Christ suffered the torments of God Almighty. There is, it is sin, by the way. You think of this. Adam and Eve's son, Cain. Did God warn Cain of sin or Satan? He warned Cain of sin, and he did not warn Cain of Satan. He said, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, Genesis 4-7. There is, in other words, nothing, nothing worse for you than sin, full stop. And you must believe that. But there is an encouragement that came with God's words to Cain. What was it? Sin desires you, but thou shalt rule over him. This is encouraging, friends, because by God's help, you and I can master sin. Now, of course, only Jesus has ever done this perfectly. But united to him, we can have a kind of mastery over sin, even if it is imperfect. And so what I want tonight, that would be a huge topic in itself. What I want tonight, given this text, is to consider how sin might deceive you, that you would be wise to it, that you would uh, be wise to it, that you would flee from it at the very first motion of sin as Joseph did from Potiphar's wife. Now, many of these deceptions that I've said, uh, I have found very helpfully uh, articulated by Ralph Venning in his work, uh, originally called The Plague of Plagues, but has been republished as The Sinfulness of Sin. And it's really the best treatise on sin that I have ever, ever read, and I doubt anybody will better it uh, this side of glory. And so he has in his work nine common deceptions that sin uses to deceive us. And um, the first is this, that you must remember that sin is quite crafty in disguising itself, right? Uh, What does Satan appear as? An angel of light, right? Sin is never going to really come at you making itself, at least naturally so, seem so ugly and so abhorrent that you are not going to want to play with it. What it does is, just as it did in the garden, is it makes itself to appear not to be sin. Always asking, hath God said? Has God really prohibited this? Sin will often whisper to you that what it, uh, what it is is not really sinful. You know, Think about our society today. Maybe this is an easy touch point, but I think you're even thinking about sins you've committed uh, and maybe you are committing. Uh, Think about what our society says. Uh, If a man loves another man in a romantic sense, which, by the way, by the Bible's definition is truly impossible, what does sin say? If they truly love one another, would God really forbid it? It's love, right? And love is beautiful. So why would God forbid something that is beautiful? This is the deception of sin. Uh, We think of worship. If man is sincere in his worship, even if it is not found in the Bible, why would God be displeased? Uh, This is the problem Cain had as well, wasn't it? In giving up worship that God was not pleased with. Uh, We see this now in a pluralistic society. If a man is truly committed to his false god, how can we say he is condemned? It was an utterly shocking thing, friends, that Billy Graham at the end of his life started saying stuff like this. 
That is the deception of sin. This is the same kind of disguise sin used in the garden. Uh, Boys and girls, let me say, many of you are going to be tempted by sin when it comes to marriage. Is it really a sin to be unequally yoked to an unbeliever? Or maybe even with your friendships with the world. Is it really a sin to associate with ungodly men and women to have close, close, tight friendships with them? The Bible says, yes, all of that is sinful. But sin's deceit will pull on your sinful heart. And your heart is going to want to long for these things that are forbidden by God's word. You know, sin is so deceptive, friends. I have seen this with people I have counseled. They will say things like, right, like uh, I I knew this one woman, you don't know her, uh, who said, well, I know he's an unbeliever, but but I just feel like I have this peace that God will, will bring him to himself if I marry him. That is sin's deception, friends. It is utterly against the word of God. Utterly so. And anything else. But you see how sin has caused her to rationalize things. Now she is utterly apostate. She has gone the way of her unbelieving husband. And sin deceived her and killed her. Anyway, all of us are prone to be utterly deceived by sin and be wise to this particular temptation now before you go into it. The second area of deception is making you think you must sin. A good example of this, and you see this in our society, there is some sympathy to this. A good example of this is thievery. A poor man might deceive himself. I must steal because I am poor or I will starve. Or you will hear rationalizations like this. Stealing from the rich is not really a sin because they have so much. (laughs) Sin is sin, friends. And God is no respecter of persons. This is one that's more common, uh, boys and girls, and you need to be wise to it. The society will say, you must tell a lie, otherwise worse things will happen to us or others. You're never, ever allowed to lie for any reason. Friends, uh, Look at the Lord Jesus. Was there a single lie found in his mouth? No. But he would keep silence if need be. He would never lie. Or you hear this deception all the time, and you see this. If I do not break the Sabbath day, I will not have food on the table. And so people say, I must work on the Sabbath day. But that's really just sin's deception there as well, right? Causing you, what are you playing the role of, my friend? You're playing the role of God in all of that. In Romans 3.8, the apostle warns you to never say, let us do evil that good may come. In every temptation to sin, in 1 Corinthians 10.13, we hear that the Lord says he will make a way of escape that you may bear it. There is never, ever a reason to sin, but sin will whisper in your ear, if you don't sin, bad things are going to happen to you. Do not listen to sin. It's only an evil heart of unbelief that will take hold of sin's doctrine. For instance, what do we read in Proverbs 30? That the poor man who sins blasphemes the name of God. Uh, Rather, a poor man who steals. I think I said poor man who sins. A poor man who steals blasphemes the name of God. Another third area of sin's deception is this, and we fall for this all the time. Just sin this one time. Just have a taste of pleasure. But what's the pleasure of sin called in the Bible? It's fleeting, isn't it? 
And what you have to understand about that, and maybe we understand this well in our society now, is that sin is very much like a drug. There is a popular snack, right, boys and girls, you might know their advertising that says uh, that you cannot just have one, right? Sin is very much like that. It tells you, just, just sin this one time, right? And then you'll be done, you'll have a taste of it, you'll know what it's like, and then you won't have to do it again. You've experienced this particular sin. <laughs> that is the deception of sin, my friend. You cannot just have a taste. Uh, I think Venning puts it this way. Uh, you know, if the serpent's head comes in just part way, it'll go in all the way, right? It doesn't just, uh, uh, you know, sin understands, right? This is why, what, what did we hear of drug dealers? The first hit is free. <laughs> they know what comes next. You're coming back to them. Sin is the same way. They know this. Uh, sin understands this better than any drug dealer. And once you sin once, you need to understand this is not spiritual neutrality. Your heart becomes hardened by every commission of sin. That's why the apostle says, do not be hardened by sin's deceit. Every time you fall for sin's ploy, your heart is more hardened. And you will not find it harder to sin next time, but easier as your heart becomes more calloused. Once sin gets one foothold in your heart, it's like the old salesman, right? The door-to-door salesman who knock on the door, you open the door a crack, they put their foot in the door, and now they're in. Sin is exactly that way, beloved. It takes up residence very easily. Don't be deceived by this particular deception. And the other thing you have to remember about sin is even one sin, the smallest sin of all, is enough to send a sinner to hell. Do not be tempted to play with that fire even once. If you are, it is to miss how heinous sin is. You know, just think about other ways, especially in this society. You need to think about this, men and women. Sin might say things like this. Um, and I even heard a pastor preach this way, which is utterly repugnant. Uh, it said, you can take a look at a man or a woman just once, right? And maybe, you know, don't, don't do it more than that. Just take one look. In fact, you can say that you're admiring God's handiwork in creating such a beautiful or handsome creation, Next thing you know, you're ensnared in all manner of lusts. Do not look on another with that kind of lusting, friends. Do not be deceived. Even the smallest look will callous your heart. If you're looking on them, not, you know, I'm not saying you can't look at the opposite uh, sex. I'm saying what you must do is look on them with chaste eyes. Then another manner of sin, uh, which is related to that, is sin often tempts you by saying, this sin would be a little sin. It's just a white lie to keep the peace, right? And it's, it's already creating in your, in your mind ideas that this is really for the best, right? Let us sin that good would result. God forbid. This is just a little white lie, no big deal. I said this morning, you know, I was talking about the name of God. It's just a minced oath saying gosh instead of God. Oopsie, no big deal. It will even use your catechism against you, boys and girls. It'll say, it'll make you forget other parts of the catechism. It'll make you say, look, there are some sins that are more heinous than others. You say, well, this is not a heinous sin. And suddenly you become like a Roman Catholic, having venial and mortal sins. The catechism's intention in that is to also teach you that even the least of sins will damn you to hell. 
But there are some sins worse than another. Worse to be a serial killer than to hate your brother. But both will send you to hell. And both are hated by God. Because the wages of sin, even the least sin, is death. Romans 6.23 Another particular deception is sin will tempt us by saying, who will know about it? It will be a secret. It's secret. Go ahead. No one else will know. Your, 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 your children, boys and girls, your parents won't know. Uh, maybe congregants, your spouse won't know. Maybe your pastor and elders won't know. Go ahead. No one will know. This is wicked above all in some ways because it is rank unbelief. Because it denies to you, and you are buying this when you fall for it, that God sees. God sees. It doesn't matter if I see. It doesn't matter if the person in the chair next to you sees. God sees, beloved. You know, the most shocking thing about us is this, that we are more petrified, friends, that someone sitting next to us here might know all the deep, dark secrets of our heart rather than God who already knows them. That is an evil heart of unbelief. Be more afraid of what God sees than what we might see in you. Remember the elders in Ezekiel, they thought they could hide, but God revealed their sin. As promised in Numbers 32-23, be sure your sin will find you out. Things will come to the light, beloved, even in front of men. If you are afraid of men, men will find your sins, and that is how God will chasten you. Next. Sin often promises you gain or happiness of some kind. You know, we think about this, right? And, and I, I, you know, I think about some of our brethren in other lands, uh, lands like Japan, where if you are converted out of the world, it is so, so hard to find a godly spouse, right? And sin says, well, companionship and love, you deserve it. And why won't you have it? Just marry an unbeliever. Or maybe in your workplace, friends, maybe sin promises to you a better footing in your workplace if you just just have that one lie to that client, right? And I can do so much good for my house, uh, for my household. And sometimes sin deceives us so greatly. It says, uh, you can be a better tither at church. You'll use your resources for the good of the kingdom. This is all the deception of sin, beloved. And we are so quick to fall for it. But listen carefully to Romans 6.21, which speaks of our former life and the things that we had done to gain happiness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. The end of every sin, the fruit of every sin, no matter how it seems advantageous, is ruin and shame and misery. Whatever you gain from it, whatever you think you're gaining from it now, is not worth the misery that will follow. So repent of your sin quickly. Next, sin will deceive you into taking a look at other sinners and their prosperity. For instance, what was Asaph's infirmity? In Psalm 73, he looks at the prosperity of the wicked, doesn't he? And he, he this is sin's deception at work. Look at what sinners have. Look at what sinners get to do. So why not sin? 
For sin does not lead to misery, it leads to blessing instead. Asaph said, this is my infirmity, and it is the infirmity of far too many of us, beloved. And what, did, what was his remedy? Until he went to the sanctuary of God, and he saw their end. Right? For a time the wicked seemed to prosper, but in the end their fate is a terrifying thing. Never be tempted by what you perceive as blessings that come from sin. And this is really heinous. I think there are so many here that I was thinking of myself, and I was just thinking of how heinous they are in God's eyes. And our problem is we don't think on the heinousness of sin as we should. This is now another particularly odious one. Sin tempts you in this by saying, uh, by reminding you of God's grace. This is perhaps one of the great temptations Christians face, because we know the tender mercies of God in Jesus how full and free his mercy is. And so sin tells you this, just sin. All you have to do afterwards is repent and God will forgive you. This is a terrible, terrible and powerful temptation to sin. God is bound to forgive you is what sin tells you. That's sin's deceit. This is what the Bible calls testing God. This is testing God. Just as Satan tempted Jesus to test God by jumping off of the temple, right? This is a testing of God. But the Lord Jesus said when when Satan tempted him in that manner, and we must say to sin when sin tempts us in that manner, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Friends, that's a reference to Deuteronomy 6.16 regarding Massa, alluded to in verse 9, when your father's tempted me and proved me. Constantly, for 40 years, tempting God. How gracious is God? Is We have to be very careful, friends, in pushing and testing the limits of God's mercies. Because what we are doing, friends, when we do this, is we are daring God. I dare you, break your solemn oath to save sinners in Christ. What you might find, friends, is that instead of a believing, tender heart, is that yours is an evil heart of unbelief. And you are actually not saved at all, because such thoughts should be foreign to the child of God. Sin has ensnared you. Don't fall for it and repent of the thought of it. And then, and this will be the last uh, deception we want to cover tonight, sin will tempt you, and this is also getting far too prevalent even in Christian circles. Sin will tempt you and say, well, this is just your infirmity. You cannot help it. God has made you a drunkard. God has made you a homosexual. Friends, you and I are sinners and we are prone to a great many sins. And the current age is very good and the church has imbibed this at making us out to be victims. And teaching us, if it feels natural, do it, right? This is the slogan back in the counterculture. Now, sad to say, it's in the church as well. And so, what an awful thing we have now reformed ministers in a sister denomination who say, I cannot help but be gay. I cannot help it. Or you have now men, and this has gone on longer than that, you have men who say, I am an alcoholic. I cannot help it. I must take drink and be drunk. That is, at the end of the day, to deny the power of the gospel. And it is to deny the work of God. 
It is sin's deception. Do not fall for it. Do not fall for it. Every sin can be contended against and mortified by the help of God Almighty. You must believe it and never ever say, I am a victim of sin. God said to Cain, master it. Hear his voice to you in that as well. You master sin by the help of God. The Holy Spirit lusts after sin, is what the Bible says. He is the most potent helper you have. Draw on the mortifying power of God. Look at Romans chapter 8 where you are called to mortify the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Holy Ghost. He has given every Christian the ability to contend against God, uh, sin by the help of God. Now, these are common deceptions used by sin to consume you. And I know, beloved, you have fallen in it because I have fallen into them as well. Maybe you have not even realized it. But be wise. Be wise, beloved, that every time we fall for it, we are hardening our hearts to the Lord. And we start, friends, we start, friends, to understand truly how sin, how evil sin is and how terrible it is that we fall into it and we ignore the voice of God because we ignore that Jesus Christ had to be slain for us in order to save us from sin. How thankful we must be, friends, when we consider our Savior that he never, ever fell into the deception of sin. How thankful we are that he alone never, ever fell into it and that he, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? What a glorious thing on the same day we're considering this topic, that he is righteous and he gives his righteousness to us and takes his sin, uh, takes our sin as his own instead. And on the cross, he did that great thing. When we realize how many ways we have fallen for sin, we see how greatly we need Jesus Christ, don't we? Hear the voice of God in that. That was a providential reading, that he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. This makes you see how wonderful our Savior is, in every point tempted as we are, and yet never once sin. And so I have gone long in all of this. So what I want to just end on, I won't go into the final heading here, is, believer, you must not harden yourself to the voice of God in any area and fall for sin's deceit. If you have, God is gracious. Praise God. Repent quickly. And the Bible says there is such great urgency here, isn't there? The Bible says, don't wait. Don't wait to repent. It says, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. What you must do is you must repent of your sin today. You must master your sin today. You must seek Jesus today, not tomorrow. This text says our duty as the people of God as well is to exhort one another daily when it comes to this. You have a duty to warn one another of the danger of departing from Jesus' word. You have a duty to warn one another of sin's deception. When a brother or a sister is going astray, you need to exhort them to see past sin's deceit and to the Savior. It is not just for me alone to do this. It is my duty, yes, to exhort you. But all of you have a solemn duty to warn one another. The beautiful thing about this is when the church of Jesus Christ together is doing this, 
apostasy is removed. The people of God together are saying, let us go together, brother, or go together, sister. Let us go and seek God together. Exhort one another daily. And so as we conclude, beloved, once again, the Lord is saying to you, my son or my daughter, give me thine heart. In this text, you see an evil heart of unbelief. You find a hardening of the heart. We find those who err always in their heart. It begins in the heart as we considered the mouth this morning. You must give all of you your heart to the Lord. Love him with all thy heart is what the Lord Jesus said. Love him by giving up on the sin which your God you say you love hates. Sin's goal is this, to murder you and keep you out of heaven. Sin's goal beloved, is not to give you eternal life and pleasures that are found evermore at the right hand of God. Sin's goal is to destroy you and consume you. That is it. The wages of sin is death. And that is why the Israelites were kept out of Canaan. Adam was thrown out of Eden. And sin will keep you out of heaven. Never callous your heart to God's voice by playing with sin. It leads to apostasy. It leads to what the Bible calls a seared, seared conscience, which is the most dreadful judgment for the child of God of all, where you are no longer sensible to sin, no longer sensible to the things of God. So set before you now is the voice of God and the deceitfulness of sin. Who will you believe? Who will you adore? Who will you serve? Whose servant will you be? The Lord's or sin's? God help you if sin is your master. God help you, for you will never enter into promised rest. For in eternity you will pay the wages of sin. Resolve to give Christ your heart tonight, beloved, and every, every portion of it. Whatever portion of your heart you have reserved for sin, give it up to the Lord today. Today. The Bible never says tomorrow when it comes to matters of the soul. Today. Do the business you need to do with the Lord on this remainder of the Sabbath day. Jesus is worthy of every portion of your heart. And sin is just such a terrible, terrible foe to you. See it that way. Amen.